turn your Bibles if you have one. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verse 12 and 13 this morning. I want to pray because uh, a lot of what goes on, we don't know really the source of evil. We don't know how to react to evil. We don't know whether we shout at the devil or we just ignore the devil or what do we do with the devil. And so we'll be exploring that a little bit today in the book of Mark. Mark's whole gospel is about how the kingdom of God like in, advances and penetrates the world and the kingdom of the world. And what happens when that happens? When the kingdom of God comes, when the kingdom of God comes in the city of San Francisco, what happens? And we get little glimpses of that in Mark's um, story of Jesus. So Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 this morning, and let's pray. Lord, we still our hearts before you and, and our minds, and I just... I pray, God, that you'd speak today. We humble ourselves as we approach your word. We look at it with all humility. By no means are we saying in this church that, um, that everyone else is dumb and, this is, and we're right. Lord, we're, we're all messed up. You're the only one that, is, that knows truth. So would you reveal yourself to us, God? We pray. I know that many are familiar with this text this morning. And can be lost under its weight because we're so familiar with it. I know there's probably people in here that are not familiar with it and it might seem to them like a fantasy, a fairy tale. I pray that, that we would catch the cosmic weight of our text this morning and we would see the real Jesus. Pray against Satan and his plans and his schemes. And we pray that the Spirit of God would fall. Would you anoint me to communicate your truth humbly but with, with great conviction this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mark chapter 1. We're looking at verses 12 and 13 today. Now, in Mark's story of Jesus, we're still, after three weeks, we're still in the prologue. Okay? We're still in the introduction. And just as we're just 13, just a little bit into it, a bar- barely a paragraph into it, verse 13, we're swept up already in a drama. We're swept up in this drama that Mark is writing. We've seen in verse 1 how Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. It's not his last name. Mark doesn't go, Jesus, last name, the Christ. It's Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the deliverer. And then he's the Son of God. And, And Mark lets us know what no one else really in the drama knows, that Jesus is the Son of God. And then right away we're introduced to this crazy prophet preaching in the wilderness, wearing this camel hair jumper with a leather belt and eating grasshoppers and wild honey. He's out there preaching his little guts out, out by the Jordan River. And it says that all of Jerusalem, sensing the eschatological commotion, because they were waiting for this. They were waiting. There was 300 years of absolute silence, and they were waiting for something like this to burst on the scene. And it did. And so there's, this, this, there's all this commotion. So all of Jerusalem and Judea goes out into the wilderness and repents. Jews repenting. Jews being baptized. This is huge. All to prepare the way of the one whom John the Baptist is preaching about. And then we get introduced to Jesus. And the way that we get introduced to Jesus is um, we're told, and we, we've been discussing this for the last couple of weeks, that Mark endeavors to show us the real Jesus. And the way he does it, at this time when Mark was writing, a lot of um, the life story of Jesus was spread orally. It was hard to refute an oral story of Jesus because of all the eyewitnesses. So if you showed up then and go, I saw Jesus 
breathe fire. And someone will go, no, 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 I was with them, I walked with them, that didn't happen. And all these other people walk with them, he never breathed fire. But if somebody says, I saw him walk on water, you might have somebody go, oh yeah, I was there for that, that was cool, that was really cool. So their eyewitnesses were able to confirm and also refute what was going on with the life story of Jesus. But eyewitnesses began to die off, and there were people who were trying to retell the story and recast and make up a Jesus of their own. So they're retelling the story of Jesus and adding and, and, and fashioning him after who they want him to be. So Mark was the first to write down a book to show us the real Jesus. And we said that the subtext of the book was this climate of unbelief. Mark wrote this in this climate of unbelief and unawareness. Therefore, Mark, the book of Mark, can handle your questions and even your doubts. If you come to the book of Mark, go, well, I don't really believe the Bible I don't really believe the Bible is inspired. I don't really believe Jesus is who he said he was. Mark's a perfect book for you to read. The actual, the the subtext of the whole book, the context of the whole book is unbelief. Now, there are often people who come to church or come to a spiritual gathering to see if this religion or this faith or this God will fit into their life. They come and go, will this Jesus fit into what I believe Will this Jesus that you're talking about, preacher boy or whatever, will this fit into what I perceive as truth? Or will it fit into my paradigm of life and existence? The problem with that kind of God or that kind of faith or that kind of Jesus is it can never change you. A God that you make up, a Jesus that you make fit into your own life can never challenge you and therefore could do nothing to bring about transformation. I mean, let's think about it at a strictly vain level, like a, a personal trainer. Can you imagine getting a personal trainer that doesn't challenge you? You go and you show up. You're like, hey, what are we doing today? And he's like, well, what do you want to do today? like, I kind of want to eat hamburgers. He's like, you know what? I was thinking the same thing. Let's do that. You would not be changed at all. Or if you've ever been to the doctor and the doctor challenges you. I remember going to the doctor a year ago and he he sat me down. He's like, listen, I've done blood tests on you and stuff. You have uh, metabolic syndrome. I'm like, I have no idea what that is. He goes, your cholesterol is all messed up. And it's... And, and you're, you've inherited um, from your mom and from your dad different sides, hypertension and, and bad cholesterol. I'm like, thank you. Now, I didn't, when he said that to me, I didn't go, how dare you say that to me? And like slap him or something. I didn't do that. I'm like, well, what do I do then? How do I change? And he goes, you, you, you have to, and he gave me this whole regimen that I have to do in order to stay healthy. If you make up a Jesus, he can never challenge you, therefore he can never change you. And that's why it's important that you take Mark at face value. That if this is the real Jesus, how is he going to change me? Now, John was not telling people uh, to make up a Jesus of their own. John the Baptist does not preach a Jesus or a God like that we saw last week. He doesn't call people out of the wilderness so that God would fit into their little life, but they would fit into the life of God. And he calls people out, of the, out into the wilderness to repent. And John was not telling people to apply the scriptures to their lives, but to apply their lives to the scriptures. Two, as the prophets of old said, prepare for this king and repent and make his paths straight. You fit into the scriptures. So they came to this river and they all repented. Thousands of them. All from Jerusalem, we're told in verse 5, came out. And their sins were symbolically washed away in this Jordan River. Now, you have thousands of people around the Jordan River. You have people getting baptized 
John connected repentance and baptism. He couldn't separate them. Repent and be baptized. Repent for and be baptized for the washing away of your sins. So what washes away your sins? The repentance or the baptism. John's preaching was both. You baptized, you were baptized because you repented. You repented, therefore you got baptized, and you walked into the river, and it was symbolically washing away your sins. And so all these people were there, and then we're introduced to the next, the major character of Mark's story, Jesus. And the way that we're introduced to Jesus is Jesus walks up on the scene, and he walks through the crowd, and he steps into that water, and consequently stepping into our mess. That's how the whole story of Jesus starts. He steps right into where their sins had been washed away symbolically. He steps into it like stepping into their dirty spiritual bathwater. And the Son of God steps into our mess and stands in the river in whose waters people have symbolically washed away their sins, allowing that water, polluted by those sins, to be poured over his perfect being. That's how Mark's story starts. And then next we heard that the, te- the heavens were torn open, the Holy Spirit came on him, and he said, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Now, we said that the only person to hear this was Jesus, according to Mark's text. Now, before the truth about Jesus can be seen in this story, the enemy, the Satan, the devil, who blocks Jesus' perception of who he is must be confronted first. And this confrontation will pervade the subsequent narrative and will ultimately lead to Jesus' death on the cross. So let's read in Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen. Mark chapter 12. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this is how we'll look at our text this morning. The occasion of the temptation, why the temptation happened, the nature of the temptation, what was going on during the temptation of Jesus, and the implications of the temptation. So what? Jesus was tempted. What does that mean? So first, the occasion of the temptation. We have to pay special attention to the way that Mark tells the story of Jesus here. If you've ever spent any time in youth group, probably maybe some of you guys spent time in, in, in youth group, or you grew up as a kid in church, you have probably heard the temptation account from Matthew's gospel that Jesus was with Satan, and he was tempted three times. He quoted the Bible to Satan, the book of Deuteronomy. Satan left him. All of these things are true, but there's a special way and reason why Mark employs such an economy of words here. He only uses 30 words in the Greek to explain this temptation. There's a reason why Mark, in his narrative, says, this is how it went down. We get, to, we get the whole picture when we back up a little bit. So back up to verse 9. Let's read verse 9. We have to see the way that Mark writes this book in like rapid fire. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately. Now, Mark loves this word immediately. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended to him. Do you see, it, went, it was immediately, notice the words that are carried over, for, over from one pericope to the next, really fast. Immediately, and Spirit, 
See those two words? Immediately and spirit. Immediately the spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, or literally in Jesus at his baptism. In the Greek it means in. And immediately the spirit drove him into the, into the wild. So Jesus was being baptized. Immediately the spirit of God came upon him, and then immediately he was sent out into the wild. And there was no break in Mark's story. Mark connected these two things together. Right after baptism, Jesus was driven into the, into the wild. Now here's a good question. If you're reading this story, you're like, wait, wasn't he already in the wild? Wasn't John baptizing in the wilderness? And then Jesus was called to the wilderness. Wasn't he already there? We're told that John was with about, with, with thousands others at, at the Jordan River, and they were close enough to food and water. But Jesus was literally, the word is cast out by the Spirit. The same word that Jesus uses when he casts out Satan. Interesting. Jesus is cast out by the Spirit of God deeper into the wilderness to be alone and tempted for 40 days. Last week, we saw heaven torn open. Right here in this narrative, we see hell torn open. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God comes on him to begin his ministry. And the Father confirms, this is my Son. Now, I want you to to, to really think about this here. When the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus... And he says, this is my son. And Jesus is spirit-filled. What follows is not tranquility. What follows is not a parade. What follows is that he's driven right into the wild in the middle of a satanic onslaught to confront and to face evil itself. This is huge. Because the plot of Mark's story is showing us Jesus' kingdom and what God brings when the kingdom of God comes. The way Mark tells the story is almost as if The temptation was the consequence of the baptism. You were baptized, and consequently, you are in the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was thrown into the wilderness because he was baptized. Why? Now, here's the subtext. Here's what's going on behind the scenes. This is what Mark wants to clue us into. If you've you've studied the Old Testament and you're reading the book of Mark, there's a subtext here that, 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 that Mark is painting. There's something beneath it all that Mark is trying to get and bring to the surface for his readers. And here's what it is. It concerns who Jesus really is. Here's what it is. Jesus is inaugurating a new humanity. Jesus is bringing about with the coming of God's kingdom a new humanity. We didn't get to get into this this much last week. But the baptism episode is reminiscent of the opening lines in Genesis. God, in Genesis we have this. God the Spirit and the Word creating the world. Let me show you in verse 1 of Genesis. In the beginning, God created, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering. That word was translated later on, fluttering like a dove over the face of the waters. And God said, God said, let there be light. Now in Mark chapter 1, We see God, the Spirit, and the Word made flesh. Look at Mark Mark verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit fluttering, descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. So it, it draws your mind back to the beginnings. There's a recreation going on. Now, In the book of Genesis, what happens after creation? Satan tempts Adam and Eve. 
in a garden, in a beautiful garden, in a, in a lush and fruitful garden. Right after the baptism, Jesus faces Satan in the anti-garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve had fellowship with God and with each other and had a, and an abundance of all kinds of food. They were actually only told not to eat one tree. Every other tree they can eat freely of. And they hung out with loving lions and like fun zebras and peaceful geese. I mean, they hung out with all these animals that they got along with, and they loved these animals, and they named them, and they hung out with them. By contrast, Jesus had no human fellowship. He was alone. He had no food to eat. He fasted 40 days, and he was in the barren wilderness with the wild beasts. It was truly the anti-garden. And this is why. If Jesus was to reverse what Adam had done, He needed to enter into a world not as Adam found it, but as Adam left it. Jesus had to enter into the world as Adam left it. So when he was tempted, he was not in the garden like Adam. He was not like Adam, surrounded by animals over which he exercised dominion. He was in the desert, surrounded by wild beasts. It was a fallen, broken, sinful, disintegrated world that Jesus faced temptation and the powers of darkness in. It was Mark's way of saying that Jesus had an infinitely harder test and a difficult, more difficult path. And it's very important to note, this happened after Jesus' inauguration, after being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he was given the Holy Spirit, and then he was sent into this. Now, why is this important? This is very important in, in, the, in the story of Mark, because it's, God, it's God's activity that triggers conflict. In the book of Mark, it's God acting that is, is what brings conflict. It's the rule of God, the inbreaking of God's kingdom that challenges every other claim to power. That's what Mark is saying here. And you'll see this throughout the whole rest of the book. That's why the baptism invokes such immediate conflict. He's baptized. He said, you are my son. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is initiating this transformation of all natural and social orders here. This is the plot of the whole book. Now, this is why demons in the book of Mark dominate people. Illnesses make them less than whole. Nature threatens to destroy, and humans oppress other humans. And so as soon as Jesus starts his ministry, he goes to the very crux of evil to knock loose Satan's grip on all these things and to bring the kingdom of God near. And for the rest of the book of Mark, One of the signs of the kingdom of God is a restoration of all these things. Demons, illnesses, nature, humanity. Jesus is actually going to the very crux of all this evil to deal with this first. So what did it look like? Well, the nature. Let's look at the nature of the temptation. It says that Jesus was tempted. Now, originally, the word didn't have such negative connotations. When I say, hey, I was tempted, you're like, ooh, so what happened? I mean, you guys already kind of know, if I say I was tempted, it probably didn't end well. (laughs) Or you're tempted, like I'm really being tempted right now or something. And you know that normally temptation doesn't end well. Originally, the word didn't have such negative connotations. The word originally meant to make an experience of, to pierce or search into. Now, it went on to mean to put to the test to see what good or evil is in a person. It was a test to see, is there good or evil in you? Now, since there's often a breakdown under such a test to display the evil that's in us, the word came to mean to tempt because it was negative. When you're tested, it always brought about not the good normally, the evil. 
When you're mad, does it bring out the best of you or the worst of you? Most of us in here would go, the absolute worst, especially when I'm driving, especially when I'm on the phone and I'm driving, especially when I'm late and I'm driving or something. Temptation or test normally bring about the worst in people. That's why the word meant to tempt. Now, here, this word actually takes on both meanings. Jesus was being put to the test in the anti-garden to show that he was equipped and ready for his ministry. But not only that, he was put, not only was he put to the test, he was solicited by Satan to do evil. He was actually tempted by Satan to actually do evil. Therefore, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wild to prove his mission, and Satan meets Jesus into the wild to thwart his mission. This is a, like, cosmic clash of kingdoms in the garden. C.S. Lewis said that because of Jesus' temptation and trial, that he is the only complete realist when it comes to temptation. He says this, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find the strength of a German army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, and only C.S. Lewis could say this, this is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it in Christ because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the f- to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. Jesus withstood the temptation, and he knows its weight, its power. He knows Satan's power. He knows it all. He was tempted in the exact same way that you and I are yet without sin. You're like, but he didn't sin. He didn't, that, what that means, he knows the full weight of temptation. The absolute weight of it. And what happens when Jesus senses and feels and knows the full weight of Satan's onslaught, of temptation, of evil tempting him? What's intriguing is all that Mark doesn't say about this temptation. If you read it, you don't really get anything. He doesn't say what the temptation was. He doesn't immediately say how Jesus fared with the temptation. And Satan almost disappears for the rest of the book. He surfaces his little head through Peter in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus is going, I'm going to the cross. And Peter goes, no, you're not. And Jesus goes, get behind me, Satan. Like reemerges there really quick to try to thwart the mission of God again. But Mark almost, just almost disappears into the subtext of the whole book after this, this episode. But what we do know from this text and the rest of Mark's narrative, is that Jesus emerges from the wilderness. We'll talk about this next week. He emerges. He, Mark doesn't say how he fared. He doesn't say, oh yeah, and then Jesus, Satan did this, and then Jesus, right hook or whatever, and he took him out, and then Jesus stood on his head, and then it was awesome, and then he moved out. No, Mark says nothing. He just says this. He was tempted for 40 days. The angels were there, and he was with wild beasts. And then the next, that next little sentence goes into, and then Jesus comes out, and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand. That's how Mark says Jesus is victorious. Jesus has knocked loose Satan's grip. He comes out and he proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, suggesting 
that he has broke the stranglehold of Satan over the world. From this point on, we see Jesus' power over everything demonic. Climaxing in that story we read a couple weeks ago where, the, where that man was in the tombs, his name was Legion. Jesus has absolute power over everything demonic. But Mark chapter 3 might shed a little bit of light on what happened in the wilderness. So turn there. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. Mark 3, verse 22, it says, um, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying to Jesus, He is possessed, because Jesus was casting out all these demons. He is possessed by Beelzebul. And the prince of demons, he casts out demons. What they're saying to Jesus is this. The reason why he cast out demons is because he is a demon. And he's the chief of all demons. And they called him and they said to him, Jesus called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Kind of gives, Mark kind of sheds a little bit of light on that temptation. What happened was, as soon as Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the, the strong man's front door. And Jesus went in and bound the strong man. And the rest of Mark, he plunders his goods. He releases people that, that the demonic realm has held tightly. This is what it means when the Spirit of God came into Jesus and he sent him right in, right in front of the strong man's door to confront evil. One of the reasons why Mark is so vague about what exactly happens in the wild with Satan is the narrative centers the audience on the dramatist personae or the, the, the way that he introduces the characters in the story. Mark is just, what he's doing here in the story, he's just introducing to you to who, who will be in the subtext for the rest of the book. He's like, and if you look at this, this is exactly what's going on. On one corner you have Satan, you have the wild beasts. And in the other corner, you have the Spirit of God and the angels. And Mark is saying, look at what's going to be involved for the rest of the book. This clashing of kingdoms. Now, I won't give the angels more attention that they want, because in the Bible, they always want very little attention. But look how they're present in this battle. The angels are ministering to Jesus. What Mark is saying is that when Jesus brings the kingdom of God and the rule of God, there's this cosmic conflicting of kingdoms. And it was the Spirit of God that led Jesus right into the middle of it. Now, this is not some, um, this is not dualism. It's not yin and yang. This is not two equal and opposite forces at work. This is not Star Wars here. The kingdom of God absolutely owns the kingdom of Satan. However, it's not the way you and I think. The way that Jesus didn't do this by some ceremony or exorcism with holy water shouting, I bind you, Satan. He didn't do that. It was by resisting temptation and trusting in God through humble obedience to God's revealed word. This is how the kingdom of God began to break into the kingdom of the world. The nature of all temptation, I mean the root of every single person here who's ever been tempted, in whatever way you've been tempted, 
The nature of all temptation is Satan trying to insinuate that God is incredibly uncaring about human needs and hostile to human progress. It's like temptation comes in this form, like God is withholding something from you. He's withholding happiness from you or money from you or your true self from you or success from you. And that's the way that Satan comes in and he tempts. He says God is hostile toward human progress. God does not want you to progress. God does not want you to move forward. Or God is, doesn't care about your needs. It's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. But God is not. Adam and Eve proved that. They wanted greater authority in the garden and a fuller life than what God had given, and they inherited shame and separation. There's a quote from a book called Missional Church. But Jesus, during his temptations in the wilderness, rejected to, you, to the use of power for selfish reasons, feeding himself alone, or self-exaltation, being saved dramatically from the consequences of throwing himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, or for the ways of the kingdom of the world, which in Matthew's gospel, Satan claims, to, claims are his to offer. What is it about the kingdoms of the world that puts them in the domain of Satan? Elsewhere, Jesus described these kingdoms as realms in which rulers lord it over others, and people use violence against their enemies. These uses of power Jesus rejected. When Jesus was tempted, what he did was trust in God and resist Satan. And what were the implications of this temptation? What did this temptation bring about? This is, if, you've, if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you please, would you please listen? Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit led to a confrontation with the forces of evil. If you're a follower of Jesus in here and you're just like, I want to be spirit-filled, the consequences for being a spirit-filled follower of Jesus is confrontation with where the way God created the humanity is unraveling. It was the spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness. You might have heard from TV evangelists or preachers that having the Holy Spirit is the key to getting what you want out of this life. Holy Spirit is the key to health and wealth, the key to tranquility and prosperity. I've heard it at churches before. I've been at a church where during the offering, they stood up and chanted that they believe that when they give money to God, they will get more money back. They believe God for bigger houses and checks in the mail, and they all chanted this, and my heart was torn. I'm like, that is not the gospel. That is not the Bible. When Jesus gets filled with the Holy Spirit, he's thrown into the front of evil to confront it by the power of God. And that's exactly what happens to spirit-filled believers. We learn from this vignette that this is not true. It might be the opposite. The spirit-filled follower of Jesus is more likely to be launched right into the middle of the most need. The spirit-filled follower might hear God to go, move to Haiti, not just for a week. The spirit-filled follower will say, move to Africa and give your life there. The spirit-filled follower will have you adopt some gnarly neighborhood in San Francisco. That's exactly when, when we heard God to move to San Francisco, so many people 
We're like, you're going to start a church in San Francisco? And we're like, yeah. Like, that's where churches go to die. And we were like, maybe. But what a death. What a death. And that's exactly what Jesus, and that is exactly this, this underlying subplot of Mark. The, the power of God's kingdom doesn't come the way that you and I think it comes. The spirit-filled, uh, the spirit-filled Jesus goes into where the most need was, to a dry and lonely place. This was our need. The Bible says this is our need. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 1 John 3.8. The reason God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus gets filled with God's Spirit, he goes to the greatest need, was to confront the, the, the opposing kingdom of darkness, to release prisoners, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal, to be, to be incarnate, to be God incarnate inside of that context in Israel. This was our greatest need, so the Spirit of God drove Jesus deeper into the wild. Now, one of the themes of Mark, and, and we'll explore this later, is this. If it's true of Jesus, it's true of Jesus' followers. The Spirit-filled follower will be called and driven to go where the evidences of God are God's created order are coming apart at its seams. This is where the kingdom of God should go. This is, where, this is why the Christians should go where there's the most brokenness and the most injustice. This is why God will open up doors for you to take really gnarly jobs that no one else might want. Or at least might, maybe they want it in this economic climate, but maybe not be your first choice. Like, it's a really hard job. I don't know if I could do that job. God does that. The kingdom of God doesn't advance through self-preservation or through safety. This kingdom that Jesus brought is advanced through self-emptying and sacrifice. Mark's the only one to record this, that Jesus was with the wild beasts. No one else records it. Matthew doesn't, and John doesn't even record this episode, and Luke doesn't. At the time of Mark's writing, and this is why, there's a couple reasons why Mark wrote this. He was with the wild beasts. Number one, it was, it was that the anti-garden. But the other reason, the other reason why Mark at the time wrote Jesus was with the wild beasts was the followers of the way, that's what Jesus, that Christians were called or followers of Jesus were called, followers of the way were at this time of Mark's writing being thrown to wild beasts. It was a way of Mark's telling his persecuted audience, Jesus is with you in the lion's den. He is with you. There was a first century pastor named Polycarp who was brought before a Roman council and was required to renounce Jesus and worship Caesar as Lord. In his refusal, the council said, I have wild beasts. If you refuse, we will throw you to them. And Polycarp replied, send for them. And they said, if you despise wild beasts, I will send you to the fire, curse the Christ, and I will swear I will release you. And Polycarp replied, You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of judgment to come and the fire of the eternal punishment. Bring what you will. 
The followers of Jesus go into the most gnarly places in the whole book of Acts. If you've ever studied Acts, the Spirit of God throws them into places where they're getting beat up all the time. And they're confronting the kingdom of darkness all the time. They're, they're confronting brokenness and, and poverty and, 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 and demoniacs. They're, they're confronting the kingdom of darkness, humbly, with the kingdom of light. Isaac Watts, and we'll close here, this famous English hymn writer wrote this. For us, baptized, for us he bore his holy fast and hunger sore. For us, temptation sharp he knew, for us, the tempter overthrew. Jesus Christ went into the wilderness to release captives from bondage. The, one of the reasons why Mark doesn't end the temptation or the conflict with Satan, because it doesn't really end until the cross. And when Jesus is in the other garden, the garden of Gethsemane, Satan tempts him again to leave, and he doesn't. And he obeys God, and he goes to the cross that you and I would have freedom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your revealed word. Thank you for this this book that Mark wrote down, who Jesus really is. I pray for hearts to be, to be loose today and, and to be open to your salvation and to your love. And we ask you, God, to do a work in those that are tempted in here, to those that have been defeated in here, to those that feel like really oppressed in here. I pray that, I don't really think that this is so much, an ex- Jesus is an example of when we go through temptation as much as he is the way that we follow, the way that we get God is that, Jesus, you've done it all. And so we reflect right now and we worship and we ask that you would search our soul and you would make us more like you. You make us whole if we're sick spiritually in here. You make us whole if we're broken. You would mend us. We ask that you would so we're the kingdom of darkness. We ask that the kingdom of light would come in San Francisco through humility and through the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask that, I ask God that you would send people in this room to very, very, very gnarly places where they can love and begin to restore. Pray that God that you would cause us to, to want to serve this city and give our lives to the city for your glory that I believe that there are spirit-filled believers in here that were sent to San Francisco. I pray that, God, that we would do your kingdom work here. We do it humbly. But we do it with knowing that the gospel is powerful. It's the power of God. We love you. In Jesus' name.